common thing is the assumption that due to your Asian physical features, that you're a foreigner. You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Sallow. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates. Do you like that? I do. I think I think you nailed it. I don't know what it actually means, but it's something. (laughs) That's the tightest intro we've ever been able to come up with. Congratulations. You're welcome. Wow. And and it makes a lot of sense that you did it on this episode because this has a lot of history involved in it. And I feel like, is that being in the spirit of Socrates? I think in the spirit of Socrates is that what he wanted to do was inquire with the citizens of Athens, all different professions, and really get to the heart of what it is that they thought that they knew. And I kind of, I like that that's what this project is about. And this, it came to me because this episode in particular really, really fits that, especially for me. And, you know, for those of you, you know, sometimes people have reached out and wondered, like, how do you do the podcast? What are the mechanics of it? And what we do is, you know, we'll reach out to guests and we have a general outline for the conversation, but we're not too strict about it so that we allow for a flow of conversation. But there's usually a general outline. And for this particular episode, that's about Asian American history. I was very much interested in framing the context of the news about violence against Asian Americans in a historical context and learning more about it. And I reached out to my good friend, James. And when he asked for a general outline, I had to write back, I'm afraid I'm at a loss. I have a deficit of knowledge here. I honestly, I don't know. And that was the first time where I was kind of stumped. But at the same time, it was really exciting because this episode, my dear friend, James, who is brilliant, And I got to be his student and anyone who is a student is really, really lucky. And so, and I I have a feeling that if I am at a deficit of understanding of Asian American history and then putting it in the context of issues that we're having today, that many of our listeners might be, you know, learning something new here. Yeah. What I I really enjoyed about this episode is, is being an Arab American myself and a lawyer and having my own, you know, obsessions with with the history of immigration to the United States and how that has impacted me. I was able to geek out a little bit on how the immigration laws have had a massive amounts of impact on, you know, not only my family, but on Asian Americans and, and others. And we get into some of the history here about many of the acts that have been passed over Congress over the years that to be, you know, perfectly blunt, uh, favored white Northern Europeans as, as, as being the preferred immigrants to the United States. Right. And we, and, and James and I kind of go into some of the history and some of the acts here and how that has affected what our country looks like today. Yeah. And even some of the pop culture stuff, I mean, or I was learned a little bit about Bruce Lee too. That was cool. Cause I was interested in knowing, wait, how are Asian Americans portrayed in film and how does that perpetuate a stereotype or does it counter the narrative? And so we cover everything from the origin of, of Asian American history to present day. And I don't say very much in this episode. I really am just completely enthralled with this. And it was just very exciting to sit there and learn about it. So everybody buckle up. It's going to be a good history lesson. And I also want to say that this episode is special for another reason. First of all, it's special because James, I knew in undergrad, he was a double major in philosophy and history, and then he went on to get his PhD in Asian American history. He's a third generation Filipino American, and his dissertation won like a national history award. So he's really, really brilliant. And it's also just always very cool to reach out to a friend and do this with them. And this is also special for another reason. And that is that one of my friends who was a former student of mine, and we became friends over the years, her name is Ashley Chen. She is the motivation behind the reason I reached out to James in the first place. And, you know, Rudy, you and I have done episodes talking about social media, you know, the pros and the cons. And this is a pro because when there was the height of the violence that was in the news, Ashley posted a really vulnerable story on her Instagram and it moved me so much because Ashley is a beautiful soul. She's so witty, so bright, and is just an absolute joy to be around. And to see her tear up in her story about the fear of going outside or worried about her family going outside, not for anything that they've done, but just for being. And I just thought, okay, this deserves an episode. We need to talk about this. It was crushing to see 
but I'm also so grateful that she was open and vulnerable. And that is one of the good things about social media. So Ashley Chen, my beautiful former student who is now my friend, thank you for doing that. And this is for you. If we can dedicate a podcast episode, Ashley, this is for you. And let's talk Asian American history. What do you think? Do you like that? It was excellent. Dr. James, welcome to the show. We are going to be learning about Asian American history in the context of what is going on in the news now. And so before we get started, could you tell us a little bit about your background, your area of expertise, and maybe the courses that you're teaching? Sure. Well, actually, my background uh, as an undergrad was in philosophy and history. And yes, I was a double major. I'm going to go ahead and get, I'm going to exit the show. This is already terrible. I'm I'm already beating, I'm already getting beat up on for another hour. I'm I'm sorry. I didn't, mean to, I didn't mean to interrupt, sir. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, I promise not to be too philosophical today and to be more historical. But yeah, uh, I was a double major in both history and philosophy. And instead of going to law school, which was my original intention, I was steered towards graduate school. And this was largely due to encouragement from some of my philosophers as undergrad. They encouraged me to pursue it. So I took that dive into it. I felt like an imposter, to be frank, in the beginning. I had this imposter syndrome. But I got acclimated to the academic milieu. I entered actually as a PhD student in U.S. history, specializing in Asian American history. From there, I finished my dissertation in 2012. I was fortunate to receive a national award for it from the American Historical Association Pacific Coast Branch. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I was able to secure a publication for a book based on my dissertation. Uh, it's with the University of Illinois Press, and it should be published by next year, the last What's the title? Well, the original title was called American Dream Deferred, Filipino Nationals in the U.S. Navy and Coast Guard, 1947 to 1970. And, you know, the Dream Deferred phrase is well-known, right, from the African American poet Langston Hughes. But then my publisher told me, well, you know what? We usually have our authors change the title for their books to uh, think of something new and not based on their dissertation. So I'm right now in the middle of trying to rethink a title. So <laughs> there's a title right now, but I have about, you know, maybe six months to think of one. For now, I don't have a definite title. You know, maybe we might be able to come up with one for you. I was okay. just going to say, pretty pretty good. Good. I help. could see the wheels turning. Oh, yeah, they're turning right now. I, they, they okay. definitely, no, it, it, it's great. It's great to hear your, about your background and, and like it kind of lays the foundation for, for this discussion. Did you, was, was one of the reasons why, you know, you decide, I mean, obviously you're an Asian American. It, it was, was that the primary reason why you decided to study this further go, going forward? Or was there something that you kind of uncovered in U.S. history that you wanted to explore further? Actually, I have to say that it was a primary reason why I decided to enter studying history at a higher level, so to say. I started having questions about my own identity in terms of belonging, right? National belonging. I realized that there was an element of, I don't want to say shame, but this sense of not being secure in who I am in ethnic terms, cultural terms. Some of that was caused by, you know, certain record companies, to be honest, whereby I heard that they wanted to replace me with a Caucasian guitar player, right? So when I heard that, this is after we broke up, it really made me rethink my identity. And therefore, I started thinking about, again, not only my identity, but the history behind my own immigration, my family immigration history, right, to this country. And that indeed became my dissertation topic. You know, I heard these stories around the kitchen table for years, for decades. My father would all of a sudden express vestiges of resentment and frustration for being a servant for naval officers for years, right? Serving them, being at their beck and call, shining their shoes, uh, and so on and so forth. Little did I know that this is sort of a hidden history that I would later uncover, right, in my dissertation work. And like I said, later on, it would develop into a book. So yeah, my decision to pursue graduate studies in U.S. history was definitely spurred by questions relating to identity and trying to find, if you will, who you really are, 
right? Uh, especially when, you know, you know, you leave your 20s behind and those questions become sort of more important than they were when you were younger. Do you think that that's something unique to what we have here in the United States as the United States being, you know, the formidable melting pot of all immigrants from all these other places coming here? And it was predominantly, predominantly there were, there were white immigrants at the very, very beginning. And, you know, Italians have had their own issues. Irish have had their own issues. And sure. they've kind of gone through that. But eventually they've just kind of become a part of, you know, quote unquote, white America. But, you know, I, as an Arab American, my parents immigrated here in the 60s and 70s. And you, as an Asian American, we're kind of going through our own, you know, melting pot integration here in your studies. Now, I know you're uniquely focused on the United States, but is that unique to here? I mean, I know that in, in many other countries, you have minorities and you have groups there that feel the otherness that you and I will talk more about here. As a sure. matter of fact, I'm a Christian Arab and Christians in the Middle East, forget about it. We've always felt kind of, you know, always other. And that's our own u- little unique thing. But in your studies and in your dissertation and everything, is there something unique about the otherness that we feel here that, that you've uncovered that is truly is unique to here that is not like any place else? Like Canada or England, for instance. Right. Yeah, and that'll, by the way, seamlessly flow into Asian American history because it centrally involves issues like labor, the migratory flow of laborers. You know, America, when you think about the broad array of different ethno-racial groups in our country, oftentimes it's explained in terms of labor flow. Whether you're talking about the Italian Americans coming over, or Italian immigrants rather, coming over uh, during the Gilded Age or Industrial Revolution, or, you know, Polish for that matter, the Slavic racial groups, Eastern Europeans in other words, they were, in a sense, pooled to the United States because they were a, quote, cheap labor force. That is to say, they're paid lower wages than the American worker. And not only that, they were thought to be a more tractable labor force. So the capitalists and the industrialists, the captains of industry, so to speak, deliberately sought cheap labor. So when you think about this, there's this interesting matrix here, this nexus between race and labor and capitalist expansion. Capitalism grows by the pursuit of profit. And that means geographically, as well as in terms of, you know, expanding your business in terms of profit. And when you think about it, profit could never be satisfied. You have to make more profit tomorrow than you did yesterday in principle. And therefore, (laughs) that means it's a never-ending goal. And if you're a capitalist, you are always trying to cut your costs. I think the slogan here is maximize profit minimize costs. So any capitalist or business owner for that matter, whether it's a family-owned restaurant or a transnational giant like Starbucks, you know that your largest cost is likely linked to labor. So you seek cheap labor. So let's go back to the Industrial Revolution as we were talking about. These captains of industry realized that they had to go abroad to seek the cheapest labor. On the West Coast, that happened to be Asians, and some Mexicans too. On the East Coast and the Midwest, like Chicago, the large industrial cities, this happened to be non-traditional source of European labor, mainly Eastern Europeans and Southern Europeans, the Mediterranean groups. And let's recall that most of these ethno-racial groups were not considered white. In fact, the Irish were not considered white, right? That seems counterintuitive today, but yeah, they weren't considered white. They were one step above the, quote, Negro. They were often bestialized in depictions back then. Okay, so what's happening here is this involves race. The pursuit of cheap labor involves race in our country. And this spans back to the beginnings of English settlement. We're all aware that racialized slavery was the form of slavery in our country. That is to say, one particular racial group being fixed to the status of enslavement. Before, uh, that was not necessarily the case. You know, the Roman Empire, their slaves were comprised of all kinds of people who they conquered. And in our country, it was affixed to one particular group, persons of African descent. So you have this interesting history of race being connected to labor, whether it's African-American slaves, and then moving forward into 18th and 19th century, new immigration happening during the Gilded Age, our Industrial Revolution, where you had the Southern Eastern Europeans, as well as some Asians. Again, this explains uh, the racial dynamics in our country. You know, that's readily apparent, right? Now, this would change later, especially after the 1965 Immigration Act. And what that act did 
is, so to speak, liberalized our immigration laws. In other words, our past immigration laws were, many of them at least, were based on race. Quota systems based on skin color. If your particular country was comprised of mostly dark people, you had a very low quota who was allowed in. If you're from Western Europe, you probably didn't have a quota at all. And if you did have a quota, they're very high. So it was uh, blatantly race-based, and that's specifically the 1924 Immigration Act. So the 1965 Immigration Act basically nullified that act. And what I'm saying here is after 1965, you have the influx of different types of immigrants. And they're no longer all cheap labor. Some of them are, but you also have immigrants you could consider as comprising the professional managerial class, okay? And you see other ethnic groups coming in, like Koreans and, you know, uh, other groups, right, that weren't as prominent before 1965. So um, today, because of that, and because uh, we tend to not only tolerate, but sometimes celebrate differences among different ethnic groups, we talk about our society as being more multicultural rather than a melting pot. The melting pot paradigm was prevalent before 1965, and that's largely due to the influx of immigrants mostly from Europe. It was more conceivable back then. And like I said, this is a good launching point in the discussion of Asian American history because Asians, by virtue of their outward appearances, it was felt that they could not truly assimilate like other Europeans in the past could readily do. Yeah, there, there's a unique corollary here that you're talking about that I can I can speak to just a little tiny bit as, as an Arab American, where we're Arabs that that came here in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, um, because we did look a little bit more white and because we did look a little bit more Mediterranean. We fought in court cases to be found to be white. Why? Well, because if you're white in the United States, you could own property. You can come and go from the United States. You had citizenship and you had a lot of power. There's a lot of power with being quote unquote white because of these immigration okay. laws. If you weren't white, you couldn't have these immigration laws. So there's this, there's like this weird split. If you go back and you, if you look at, at Asia and where my family is from is, is technically in the continent of Asia, but like part of Asia is considered white. And so that's like Persia and, and, and uh, you know, Jordan and all those countries where people tend to look quote unquote white. Now, back then, the types of immigrants that came from that part of the world happened to also be Christian. So there was a religious element to the whole thing. It was like, oh, okay, well, you know, these people, they, they kind of look like us and they kind of have the same religion. And all right, so we're going to count them as white. And it's because we became white in the late 1800s and 1900s, we got a lot of rights. Like we, we weren't subject to a lot of the exclusion acts that the Asian Americans were, were right. subject to. We weren't, we weren't subject to the same quota system that a lot of the Asian Americans had where we're focused that that we're also subject to so we have our own weird unique history with you know working within and manipulating the immigration laws in our own favor that like a lot of arab americans like myself are kind of going back and saying hey guys like we got to talk about this like we are the other here in the united states like we're we're really more akin to the asian americans and our and our south asian brothers and sisters yet because of what we did in the late 1800s and 1900s we're considered white and like a lot of, a lot of arab americans don't even understand that a lot of americans don't really know the power of the immigration laws to dictate how the generations of power and a whole bunch of things have affected things so like I completely understand what you're saying, man. I get it. You really got to go back to history and understanding the roles of the immigration laws to see the roots of where we're at today. I'm, I'm afraid that I'm, this question is so naive. So I'm, give me a moment. Um, what is the marker for, for the determining of, since, since race is essentially a sociological and cultural, like, you know, it's, um, what is it, um, classification. So when somebody is making the case I am white. What is the measurement in order to conclude that that is true? Okay, that's a great question. And oh, this dovetails with talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. And it actually uh, goes a good way in discussing Asian American claims towards citizenship. Okay, because Asian Americans were denied citizenship with the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act. There was a provision that was part of that. Uh, that legal category was called aliens ineligible for citizenship. And we could talk about why it was felt that Chinese were just incapable of assimilation, therefore should not be American, and 
be conferred citizenship. And it definitely points towards this idea of race being a social construction. And oftentimes it's the law that creates these legal fictions, if you will, about what is white, what is not, what is in between. And the reason why it can't be pinpointed with exact accuracy is precisely insofar as it's a social construction. So there have been Asians challenging the legal definition of what is white in order to gain citizenship because with the 1882 Exclusion Act, Asians were barred from citizenship. Uh, There's a provision in the 1882 Exclusion Act that is called Aliens Ineligible for Citizenship. And what that does is claim that Asians cannot be citizens because they cannot fully assimilate. And, you know, this opens a whole other discussion. In a basic sense, you know, they're denied citizenship. So uh, by the 20th century, the early 20th century, you see some Asians challenging this. Let me back up a little bit and talk about an Armenian person who was challenging the legal definition of what is white. And in his challenge, his legal challenge, it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court rendered this decision that, yes, he should be uh, given citizenship because he is white. Why? Because Armenians, that particular ethno-racial group, right, and even a linguistic group, can be traced to something called Indo-European. They even use the term Aryan. Um, supposedly, according to this kind of anthropology that's linked to linguistic studies, they trace Caucasians or white persons all the way down going to India. By the way, that's why, of course, the Nazi regime chose Aryans, right? And that's why they use the swastika. The swastika is actually a Hindu symbol, right? Mm-hmm. In any case, he won his fight to gain citizenship based on his whiteness. So, this led other persons to challenge what was white. And one particular person was Japanese. His name was Azawa. And Azawa decided to claim citizenship and whiteness based on his outward appearance and his assimilation to American society, American culture. He claimed his skin was just as white as other Caucasians or white persons. He claimed that he was fully assimilated that he was a paragon of assimilation, that he taught his children only English, and so on and so forth. Now, the court heard this, and they said, well, Mr. Ozawa, you know, you may claim all this stuff, but according to scientists, right, or uh, anthropologists who study what is white, you are not indeed white. You are actually what's called mongoloid, okay? You're Asiatic, okay? In other words, you don't fit, or your argument does not uh, conform to the earlier argument put forth by the Armenian person. Now, three months later, after Ozawa lost his case, another person challenged it, and he's from South Asia. His name was Bagat Thind, and he put forth the same argument, right? By the way, he was a World War I veteran, and he fought inside of the United States, of course. He was an upstanding citizen. And not only that, he put forth the scientific argument that the early Armenian did. But guess what happened? The court said this. Well, you know what, Mr. Thin, you put forth a compelling argument, but In this case, we claim that common sense dictates that you are not white, you are Asian, right? So look at that. The reasoning, the rationale, legally speaking, was turned around, (laughs) right? From Ozawa to Thin. Ozawa was claiming that his whiteness was due to, you know, common sense, literal understanding of what is white. And Thin came along and used the other argument, but the court turned him down by using Ozawa's argument. You see that? So what this shows is that, you know, not only the sort of fluid and uh, unstable definition of what is white in our country, but also shows how, you know, the law can arbitrarily and contingently define what is white. And when you're doing that, uh, let's say citizenship laws, you are in a way, at least some legislators, you can use that to, quote, protect your borders, right? To prevent people who are deemed less desirable, if not undesirable, uh, from entering the country and affecting the racial homogeneity of your country. And indeed, that has happened in the past with the Affirmation 1924 Act that I mentioned. That was passed by two sponsors, Johnson and Reed, who felt compelled to put this law in motion because they were agonizing over the fact that the Anglo-Saxon race, so to say, was being overcome by these other racial groups like the Italians and the Eastern Europeans, and they felt they had to protect the borders of the United States. 
in racial terms. You had mentioned when we were talking that there was this division between, I think, did you say Orient and Occidental or is that what it was? Yeah. And it's very important to bring this up because uh, scholars of Asian American history often acknowledge this ideology as a reason, one reason as to why Asians are continually uh, misrepresented and misconceived as foreigners. So a common experience had by many Asian Americans, and I got to say, this is less so in, say, the bigger cities of California, for example, like Los Angeles or San Diego. But nonetheless, a common thing is the assumption that due to your Asian physical features, that you're a foreigner. You know, most of us have been asked the questions, you know, hey, where are you from? And you go, well, you know, I'm from California, or I was born in Oakland, which is true, right? And then they go, well, where are you really from? And then, you know, you're kind of taken aback, right? (laughs) But you kind of know where they're driving at. You know, it seems that it's more likely for Asians to be asked that question, where are you from, than other ethno-racial groups. Okay, so let me give you one personal example of mine. I was visiting my parents during Thanksgiving, and I was told to pick up some pies from Marie Callender's. So there I was outside early in the morning, it was cold, and standing in line there, and uh, there was this nice lady in front of me. And she turns around and sparks, you know, conversation. And after a few minutes, she says, oh, by the way, I, don't, I didn't know you guys celebrate Thanksgiving, too. And I said, well, you know, I was born here. I started to explain this and that. But then I realized by her facial expression that she thought maybe she had committed a faux pas, right? Mm-hmm. So as soon as, as, as soon as I was finished with my explanation, she said, oh, you know, honey, I would rather eat some good Chinese food anyway. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, look, at, look at that. You know, okay. it always elicits laughter and chuckles from my students when I tell it, right? But at the same time, it's revealing. Yeah. Right? Was this lady racist? No, she was sweet. It was not malicious. No harm done, in other words. However, during circumstances that are fraught with urgency or duress, let's say economic insecurity, war, let alone a health crisis, right? Situations that somehow involve Asians or Asia itself. Uh, This misconception of perpetual foreignness can turn ugly. In fact, it could turn deadly. And it's led, in fact, to episodes of virulent racism perpetrated by both citizens and the government, which we could discuss in our conversation today. But just to provide uh, some examples, the purge of the Chinese from the West Coast, right, during the 18th century, the various race riots and mass murder of Asians, which are pretty much unknown to most Americans, you know, they're blamed for stealing jobs or even consorting with white women, you know, the Filipinos in California. Then the the stereotype of perpetual foreigner has led to, as I mentioned, racist immigration laws aimed specifically at Asians. And it's also led to internment, right, during World War II, the Japanese Americans. Then even after that, during the Cold War, we could talk about, you know, Chinese accused of espionage and all this stuff. Uh, And let's not forget accusations of Asian Americans as being carriers of exotic diseases. You know, this was called the yellow peril. Or that all Asians, you know, Chinese, Filipinos, Thais, Japanese, should be single-handedly blamed for this global pandemic, right? And so on. So the question arises, where does this misconception arise from? Well, as I mentioned, scholars uh, in Asian American studies cite a particular ideology that crystallized pretty much during the height of European imperialism in the 18th and 19th century. And that's the ideology of Orientalism. Orientalism is how the East was represented by the West, by Western civilization during this time. One scholar in particular, Edward Said, is almost single-handedly responsible for this academic enterprise called post-colonial studies. Edward Said, by the way, the well-known Palestinian uh, scholar at uh, Stanford University, correct? Right. He's since passed, but yeah, he, uh, like I said, he's considered a patron saint in the whole academic discipline of post-colonial studies, which I am immersed in. And it's just just utterly fascinating. <laughs> okay, uh, so with Orientalism, it states that the world is divided into two fundamentally different parts. There's the Orient and the Occident. And it was felt that the two cannot 
truly meet due to their fundamental differences. The Oriental world is so exotic, you know, the food, the culture, so strange, the language, so foreign sounding and perhaps even dissonant to the Western ear, not to mention physical traits, right? So when it comes to questions of what makes them different, this involves what scholars refer to as essentialism. That is to say, the ascription of qualities possessed by Orientals that are supposedly unchanging, they're immutable. That is, Orientals are essentialized as fundamentally different and perhaps even fundamentally opposed to the Western world. So, you know, it's a creation of binary opposites in a sense. Well, it's a complete denial of what it means to be human. Yes. I mean, when you think about to say like, oh, okay, yes, this is, I mean, it's a denial of all the human experiences. It's um, flattening somebody's character to just a few things and denying that somebody has hopes, dreams, loves, fear, all that kind of thing, you know, desire for work, for family. It's a complete denial of all of that, which is essentially, I think, what happens in any kind of discrimination or racism is where somebody is just completely flattened. Given this history and what we're, what we're unearthing, I think it's really helpful for understanding some of the context of today. Okay. I wanted to, if we, if we can, just jump a little bit to today. I think why, let's see. The violence that has been in the news about um, against Asian Americans, I guess I want to know from your point of view, not only as a historian, but also as an Asian American, when you see this unfolding in the news, what comes to your mind? This is, seems to be like, this is not a surprise, or this is upsetting, or um, then your fear for your own safety, for your families. I mean, like you personally, and then as an academic... And then also the way people are handling the discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the spate of these COVID hate crimes committed against Asians are not unprecedented, even though most Americans do not know this, right? They think it's actually something that suddenly arose amid the pandemic. But in actual truth, it's continuous uh, with a long history stretching back to the very beginning of Asian immigration to the United States. That's what I want to know. Why don't we know that? Why does it sound like, oh, all of a sudden? Like, why don't we know that? Yeah, because Asian American history, as with many other ethnic histories, has been put under erasure in uh, the margins of U.S. history. Okay, You have these professional and academic historians, uh, especially uh, in older times, right, uh, before World War II, or basically charged with the task of writing our national histories. You know, you have to talk about what gets included in that national history. So uh, the very act of inclusion necessitates exclusion in many ways. What's going to be excluded in this project? It's usually those persons who feel that they had nothing to contribute, uh, that they were actually the other rather than, you know, Americans. This includes, of course, Asians. And this places back to Orientalism because, um, you know, if it is indeed true, according to that ideology, that the two worlds are fundamentally opposite from each other, that there's a cavernous gap between the two and never the twain shall meet, so to say, then a corollary to that is that Orientals, so to say, cannot be put in the Occidental world and become fully assimilated, right? They cannot be fully Americanized or Westernized. Uh, So what does that mean? It it means that they are banished from true national belonging. And when it comes to history, they don't really matter. At best, they're relegated to a minor footnote in U.S. history. I remember learning in high school that the Chinese helped build the railroads, and that's it, right? That's Mm -hmm. about it. And then, uh, you know, once I entered college and took Asian American history, this entire world, this historical terrain came open to me that I just explored for years, right? Mm -hmm. For years after year, as I argue, even though Asians and other ethnic groups have been marginalized, When you interpret U.S. history from their particular angle of vision, from their point of view, it reveals a lot about our country. The margins, in many ways, defines the center. This is what's revealing about ethnic histories. 
it tells us a different story that often runs counter to the more celebratory or triumphalist sort of renderings of our national history. Stories that we like to tell ourselves about ourselves, right? And we celebrate it. Well, what interrogates those narratives and those, you know, those uh, celebratory renditions is exactly those who've been marginalized, if not banished altogether from the nation, whether through citizenship or through the writing of history. So like I said, that history has been in large measure erased. And indeed, studies like Asian American history, ethnic studies, and so forth, is attempt to reclaim those histories, to rescue it from obsolescence, right? It's a project of reclamation. And it's basically stating that, yes, we do matter in U.S. history, and we've contributed a great deal to this country, and we belong within the margins of U.S. history. What kind of portrayals of Asians um, in the, in, let's say, in Hollywood, in films, how does that add to the conversation or, you know, to prejudices or problems? I've seen, I think it was George Takei who was talking about how um, Asian men have been desexualized because he had this post and he posted all of these photos of these really beautiful Asian men um, to counter that narrative or that Asian women are fetishized, that they're just, they're also just a thing. So for some reason, the men are desexualized and then the women are just supposed to be like quiet and subservient. They're also denied their humanity. So are there any portrayals of Asians in films, like let's say popular films, where you think that was great or that was problematic or that's adding to a stereotype. Yes. Well, you know, this keeps bringing us back to Orientalism. Mm -hmm. Because uh, when you look at even, you know, films in the 20th century, they are Orientalist renderings of Asian persons, right? That perpetual foreigner stereotype, you could easily attach someone like Mr. Miyagi or the character that was in Breakfast at Tiffany's right, with the thick accent. And, you know, it brings us back to Orientalism also because Orientalism ascribes these essentialist characteristics in gender terms. Oriental men are supposedly, as you said, passive, weak. They lack masculinity. Oriental women are supposedly, you know, the seductive women. They're even hypersexualized. And this connects to the Atlanta shootings, right? So um, it's not until relatively recently that we've seen Asians depicted as actual Americans rather than foreigners. And this is a step forward, it's a leap forward for Asians in this case, the film industry. Nonetheless, the reason why they're so vocal, Asians and so forth in the film industry is precisely due to orientalized depictions of Asians. They want to expunge that from our cultural production because Asians, just like any other ethnicity, not only assimilate, you know, they could portray your typical American just like anyone else. They just happen to look a particular way, right? Uh, think about Mr. Miyagi again. Have you heard his real speaking voice? He sounds. No. Yeah, he was on Happy Days. American. He was, uh, yeah, he was, he, was, he was Arnold on Happy Days. He was the original, he was the original diner oh. owner. He, he is American. There is no accent there whatsoever. Okay. Yeah, um, I yeah. didn't know that. That's cool. <laughs> so, yeah, um, most, now, of course, Part of that is reinforced through, you know, his film roles. But still, you know, why is it that every Asian has to portray someone who's foreigner? That, again, always connects to Orientalism. So you could see how Orientalism looms large in the study of Asian American history, because it seems invariably the case that somehow it connects to the stigma of Asians as being perpetual foreigners. Just because we're on this topic, and if you don't mind, James, and I, and I, I just want to ask this, you know, if it sounds ignorant, it sounds ignorant. I, oh, I, yeah. I, I, he, yeah. hear, he, hear it from, from a place that, that I'll explain. So when I was growing up, I, um, I'm a direct beneficiary. Me and my whole family is a direct beneficiary of the 1965 Immigration Act because it wasn't for that act. My family, my father wouldn't have been able to immigrate to this country. Not only my father, but um, my, some of my uncles, as well as my aunts who came from other parts of the world. One of my aunts who I'm extremely close with, I consider her a second mother, is Korean American. She, she came here in the late 1960s in downtown Los Angeles. And she was, the, she was the oldest of all of her 10 brothers and sisters. And she wound up bringing all of her brothers and sisters here to the United States. Some of them lived with us. And I've always considered myself part Korean. Now my cousins are part Korean. And growing up, 
Um, my cousins had um, uh, posters on their wall of Bruce Lee. And my aunt um, would, would tell my cousins, even though they're half Korean, they would say, oh, that's your, that's your uncle, Bruce Lee. And they loved Bruce Lee. And they had this hero. And I knew what Bruce Lee meant to my cousins. And I remember as a little kid being jealous of that because I was pure Arab American. They were half. I didn't have a hero. Like I, there was no Bruce Lee for Arab Americans. Dare I say, we still don't have a Bruce Lee. And I guess I'm trying, I hear what you're saying about the Mr. Miyagi character and, and that whole thing. But I am just kind of curious, just from a historical perspective on media, Bruce Lee, great for, for Asian Americans. Um, is he viewed negatively? I want to know for my own edification, because I'm, I guess I'm just showing you a window into my childhood of being jealous that my half Asian cousins had a hero and I never had one. Right. Well, interestingly enough, there's been some work done in cultural studies that looks at Bruce Lee as a cultural icon in the context of, say, Asian American identity. And oftentimes what they state is that Bruce Lee was the antithesis of that Orientalist rendering. Because why? It's a reclamation. It's recovering Asian American masculinity. Because here's this guy, he's really muscular. He could kick everyone's asses easily, right? Can't mess with Bruce Lee. And not only that, um, he, he was adored by practically all ethnic groups, right? White, Black, Asians, a lot of different ethnic groups. And that's still true today. So, yeah, it's an interesting case that runs counter to the typical depictions of Asians in America. And in fact, you may be aware of this, but uh, Bruce Lee was initially considered for that TV show in the 1970s called Kung Fu. Now, he didn't get the part. Why? Well, he looked too Asian. It was felt by the TV producer. So what they did is pick this guy named, I think his name was Keith Carradine, and he's Caucasian portraying an Asian. So there we go. It's an interesting case where Bruce Lee is depicting this masculine Asian male, yet at the same time, because of his ethnic features, outward appearances, he's denied this, you know, really good role in television that would have catapulted him further into, say, a celebrity in American culture. And it's uh, something that reminds us that no matter what, even though Bruce Lee is a attestation of that reclamation of Asian American, you know, masculinity, he's still dealing with discrimination inside the Hollywood business, right? It seems to be this uh, dilemma that you can't seem to escape, especially back then in the 1960s, 1970s, right? He could not shed his, quote, racial uniform. Now, when you think about Hollywood back then, other ethnic groups were able to do that. I forgot his real name, but Kirk Douglas, and you could look this up on the internet, Kirk Douglas's real name is very Eastern European, okay? Of course, he was told, you know what? You can't use that name. You got to use an Anglo name. So we changed to Kirk Douglas. Asian Americans can't do that, right? Ben Kingsley is ethnically ambiguous. He can play like... And and his name has changed. Yeah, there's countless examples of Eastern Europeans or, or, or you know, Jewish Americans that had to change their names to make them sound more Anglo yeah. uh, back in the heyday of Hollywood and, and even into the 40s and the 50s and even into the 60s that, that have done it. They've Anglicized their names. But your point, if what I'm hearing is, well, all they had to do was change their names, right? Is that, that that's, that's all that's they had to do. Right, 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 right. <laughs> and Bruce Lee couldn't do that, right? Um, well, you know, there's always been in the history of race in the United States, this hierarchy based on skin color. On the very top of the hierarchy, the white race, and even back in the 19th, let alone the 18th century, the definition of whiteness was very restricted. Mm -hmm. Okay, it applied to persons of Anglo-Saxon descent, perhaps Northern Europeans. As I mentioned earlier, Irish were not considered white. And as you say, their humanities robbed of them. In a way, they were conceived as closer to the beasts than with human beings. They were often bestialized in depictions of Irish. Why is this? Because, you know, the Irish were in this perennial conflict with England. The English Empire went over to Ireland and colonized it in the 1500s. So that aroused the ire and the anger of the Irish, and they're going at it, right? Irish were considered white. And it was always constantly in flux who was white. And today, all you have to do is look at the census every 10 years, and things change in that. Maybe not the definition of whiteness, but of other groups. Uh, what counts as Asian? What counts as Pacific Islander? 
and so on and so forth. The fact that every 10 years, the census has to change in terms of its ethnic categorization, its racial categorization, bespeaks the fact that race, even at this administrative level, is a social construction. And there's a reason why you can't affix certain essential attributes connected to skin color that are supposedly had by all persons within that specific category. It's because there's always going to be exception to the rule, right? Yeah. yeah. So you cannot pinpoint exactly what it means to be white and not to mention other groups. I am curious, what is the Asian American population in the States, if you happen to know, like, yeah, what percentage of the United States is Asian American? And then the other question I have for you is that when you say you started taking uh, courses in undergrad in Asian American history, and then it prompted you to want to study this further, now you're on the other side of that. Now you are the leader, the creator of the syllabus, you are the academic. What does teaching mean to you? What have your students gotten out of this? Do you see students coming into your class and reading this and having that same kind of moment or feeling of like happiness, comfort, um, whatever it is where there's this like connection that they're making with the material that they hadn't had before and you are the one who is delivering that? So I just want to know what that experience is like for you. Currently, Asian American population stands at around 6% of the United States population, and it's growing, mm-hmm. all right? Before World War II, and certainly before the 1965 Immigration Act, it was significantly lower. In fact, during the times of the so-called driving out of the Chinese, you know, the purging of the Chinese, uh, flowing into the early 20th century, you know, Asians only comprised 1% of the population. So it is a considerable rise of the population. 6% now, surprises me. But maybe, is that because I'm in California? Because I would think it would be so much higher, but maybe that's because I'm in California. It really is because you're in a city where, or which is a a destination for many Asian immigrants, right? Okay. And not only that, through chain migration, which Rudy talked about, where you could petition your family members and friends from, you know, your home country, your place of origin, and they could eventually come to the United States. So chain migration is a big part of contemporary Asian American life, family life. But um, the Asian American population is growing exponentially, I should say, all right, due to chain migration plus the influx of the professional managerial class, like I mentioned. You may have heard of this. 2045 is supposedly the year whereby racial minorities will... um, well, let me just say where whites will be the minority in the United States of America, okay, 2045. <laughs> this is in large part due to not only Latinx immigration and so forth, but Asian immigration to the United States. You put that together and it's leading to this exponential increase in ethnic population, right? Now, some nativists are wringing their hands about the year 2045, Mm-hmm. Some white supremacy groups call this the great replacement. Yeah. And in large measure, that's what's spurring a lot of the white supremacy groups in their activity. They have anxiety about this. But let's remember that this was exactly the same agonizing anxiety held by Anglo-Saxons back at the turn of the 20th century in face of all that immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe. The 1924 Act, as I mentioned, was passed precisely because of the different ethnic groups from Europe coming over, threatening the racial homogeneity of the Anglo population. Well, at least the Anglo domination. Okay, so 2045 again looms as this year where some people see it as a landmark year, something we should celebrate, our sort of... um, idea of a nation of immigrants, right, to quote John F. Kennedy. But there are some people who don't look forward to that, to say the least. We saw them all January 6th. What's that? Oh, yeah. I said we saw all of them on January 6th. I did a significant number of those um, would not welcome that, right? (laughs) Now, in terms of my teaching, yeah, I began teaching Asian American history at the community college level. I was surprised to see that not only Asian Americans were attending the class, but persons from different ethnicities. And oftentimes they become, you know, uh, very enthusiastic in what we were discussing, the texts that we were reading, uh, the various historical categories that we were learning. I found that in most cases, the students found the narratives 
and historical frameworks that were used to understand these narratives to be eye-opening. And as I mentioned earlier, it's a case where marginalized people within the giving nation arguably provide a glimpse of that nation that is more telling than, say, mainstream narratives. Uh, the margins define the center again is my overarching theme here. These students, of course, are able to grasp that. It's very encouraging. It's uh, also true that I learn from my students because they're willing to share stories from their family's history with me. I've had a person share their family history with being in so-called educational camps, right, in Cambodia, wow. mm -hmm. re-education camps, and how their parents like barely fled from Cambodia live. I have students do an oral history paper where they interview someone of Asian descent. They gather these oral interviews and they contextualize it according to the categories that we discussed, like Orientalism and perpetual foreigner, immigration restriction, and definitions of what is Asian, what is white, and so forth. All these things that we've been discussing. And it's very rewarding to see students when they put all this material together. They take people's stories kind of like the stories I heard when I was growing up, right? And they add to the stories some more academic content while interpreting it through the various prisms that are introduced in the class, that is to say, the uh, interpretive frameworks. So again, I find it really rewarding. You know, students realize that this approach to history is definitely not mainstream, but as I've repeatedly mentioned, and what's very telling is the fact that it gives you a story from which to interpret our national history, something that's been, in many cases, marginalized, if not erased altogether. Yeah. James, thank you so much for this conversation. This was just, this was great. Rudy, we learned a lot. <laughs> this was an awesome history class. Well, thank you. I appreciate being we did. here. We definitely did. It was, oh. uh, it was very, very helpful to get some of the historical context. And just as a lawyer, hearing somebody talk about the impacts of all the immigration acts on, on him and, and his thinking and, and his approach to everything is interesting because I focus a lot on that too. Uh, so it, it's just, it's just fascinating here to hear another perspective. Uh, so it's very helpful. Thank you very much, James. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. Your students, your students are lucky. This is just, yeah, awesome history class. And it's obviously just very cool to talk to you again. <laughs> thank you so much for listening. If you have any thoughts or questions about this episode, the podcast in general, or if you'd like to advertise with us, you can get in touch. Good is in the details pod at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook group and we're on Instagram at good is in the details pod. If you'd like to support the show, we're on Patreon at patreon.com slash good is in the details. And I will link that in the show notes. And until next time, bye.